going to move into this time of, of teaching, and uh, I've titled this sermon, The David Generation, The David Generation, and uh, on December 28th of last year, so about a month ago, December 28th, uh, I woke up early in the morning, and just in my normal rhythms of, of, of being in the Word, I happened to stumble on First Chronicles 13. And so that's where we're going to be tonight is First Chronicles 13. If you're new to your Bible, that's in the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's sort of after the Kings, First and Second Kings, and then you have First and Second Chronicles. We're going to be in First Chronicles chapter 13. And that morning, I, I read this story. I was reminded of King David and what's happening, and we'll unpack what happens in, in this chapter tonight together. And, and the Lord was really just teaching me a lot of things that were for myself, and I was so thankful for that time with the Lord. And that morning also happened to be a last Thursday. And if you've heard, uh, on the last Thursdays of the month, community members and pastors of all ages and, and members of churches of all ages from all different churches are coming together on the last Thursday, which keep in mind is this Thursday too, to different local churches to pray for college students, to pray for the National Collegiate Day of Prayer. And even on December 28th, when all of y'all were gone, a group uh, got together, about you know, 50 adults. I was the youngest person in the room uh, that day. It's normally I'm one of the older people in the room. But I was the youngest person in the room that day, and we were praying at, in the morning, 6.30, 7 o'clock, 7.30, all the way to 8 o'clock. And as I was praying that morning, I began to pray for you. I began to pray out of 1 Chronicles 13 on December 28th. And in that prayer, the Lord gave me this phrase, Lord, would they be a David generation? Lord, would we be a David generation? And that's how we got to tonight. And so I believe the Lord has something important for you to hear. Since that day, every morning, I have been reading more about the life of David and learning more about the life of David because I wanna be the David generation, which is why I put it on the bracelets as well as Pray 77, but also David generation. You know, when you think about David, if you've been around church at all, if you've been around your Bible, if you've been in your scriptures class, you probably think about a couple of things first. You probably think about David and Goliath, right? Uh, the little guy who, who, who slings around the, the slingshot and throws the rock at the giant. And then you think about David and Bathsheba, his lowest point, his place of sin, his place of adultery, his place of murder. But I wanna say this, I feel that we have missed the main thing about David. Why was David called the man after God's own heart if he has one of the most extremely low points in the Bible? Why is that the story we remember? Surely it's not about a slingshot and a good throw one day, right? I mean, that's not what made David special. That's not what made David important. I believe, I believe it's because he was so fixated and so obsessed with the presence of God. That's what the, the Lord was showing me on December 28th that morning in, Psalm, in 1 Chronicles 13, that David was obsessed with God's presence, about centralizing it in his life, about centralizing it in the nation. And it wasn't about all the religiosity, it wasn't about all of the, the faith things and the church things, and, and, and all of that was fine, but there was something deeper than that that he understood, and it was God's presence in the center. And so as you are in First Chronicles 13 tonight, hopefully you've made your way there, some background information before we dig into this is that this is sort of the inauguration speech for King David. Uh, so he had actually been anointed to be the king 20 years prior, King Saul was the first king, David was anointed to be the next king, but had to wait 20 years to be the next king, and he had waited patiently, serving, humbly, waiting his turn. He would say things like, 
I will not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed one, that being King Saul. Like until God removes him, I'm not getting in the way. Even though everybody wants me to take the throne, until God removes him, I remove him. So he had waited 20 years patiently. And as he had been waiting, there had been extremely tough times, mostly because King Saul, the guy before him, had grown extremely jealous and he was filled with rage, and he was filled with anger, and he was trying to kill David. And, and really, Saul became a madman, the Bible tells us. And so the last section of Saul's life is just him in this relentless pursuit to kill David. So this waiting time was extremely harsh and heavy. And all of that waiting, two decades, all of that trauma from this previous king, one of you dead, what would David say in his first speech? Would he get up there and say, told you so, that guy was crazy, I'm the good guy, right? No, he didn't say that. What would he say? You know, often when we have a new administration come in, they have something called the first 100 days. And, and what they are lining out in those first 100 days is what are our initiatives gonna be as, a, as a, the president of the United States? What are the things that we're gonna major in? In fact, when they're campaigning, they often talk about, in my first 100 days, I'm gonna do this, 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 and this, right? And then they start to do it. It's sort of a, a zag from the old president, but also the new direction for the nation. And so David is in front of everyone, laying out his first 100 days. What would it be for King David? Let's read 1 Chronicles chapter 13, just the first eight verses. It'll be on the screen, or you can read out of your Bibles along with me. David conferred with each of his officers the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, so now everyone's gathered just like they are when a president gives his inauguration speech. If it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our people throughout the territories of Israel and also the priests and the Levites who are with them in their own towns, their pasture lands, to come and join us. Here's the key verse for us if you wanna underline verse three. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to this because it seemed right to all the people. And so David assembled all of Israel from, from the Shiloh River in Egypt all the way to uh, Lebo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath Jerim. And David and all of Israel went to uh, that place, the same place, to bring it up, uh, bring up where the ark of God was of the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. And they moved the ark of God. They moved the ark of God from Abinadad's house. I think I just butchered that pretty bad. Um, and they moved it on a new cart. David and all of the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps and lyres and timbrels and cymbals and trumpets. So what's going on here? Well, I want you to think about and realize that the Ark of the Covenant had been missing from its rightful place. So it wasn't where it was supposed to be. So a couple of questions to, to set up this situation. What is the Ark of the Covenant? And there's gonna be a picture of it on the screen. Kevin, you can go ahead and throw it up there. This is obviously like the cheesiest looking photo I could find. Um, the Ark of the Covenant was this massive golden box that literally, as we just read, it says that the Lord's presence dwelled in between the cherubim. In you can see that kind of like glowing thing between the wings, right? That it was this extremely holy box. And it was holy because there were these items in the box. You can see there's uh, the actual Ten Commandments, and there's the, the staff, and, and there's all these things, these kind of relics, these things where God had moved in powerful ways. They kept them in there, but this place was so 
holy. This box was so holy, the Ark of the Covenant, that actually it was hidden within this tent and there was a wall there and only a, a certain person could enter that tent. They couldn't even lay their eyes on it, it was so holy. And if anyone touched it, they would die. And even the person who could lay eyes on it and be in the presence of this thing was only allowed one day a year to be in its presence. This is how holy and powerful it was to be in the presence of God in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, through this box. It was marked by God's presence. And to put it plainly, it was the most intensive place of the presence of God. It was the representative in the Old Testament for the glory of God, for his power, for his holiness. And so the second question is, where is ark? Where is the ark? Where is the ark and where should it be? The ark of the covenant is supposed to reside in the tabernacle, as I just said. And eventually it's gonna reside in this glorious permanent temple, but right now it's basically in a tent called the tabernacle. And that's where it's supposed to be, right in the center of everything. And there's this room that it's supposed to be in, as I mentioned. And, and, but at this time, when this inauguration speech happens with David, for 20 years, Saul had allowed this box to, to leave its spot and, and to go out and to go somewhere it wasn't supposed to go. He, he took it somewhere it wasn't supposed to go and he left it in his son's house outside of the Holy of Holies, outside of the place God had designed, outside of that tabernacle into Saul's son's home for 20 years. And so for all this time, think about this, for decades of Saul's leadership and the people of Israel, they've been operating as the people of God. They've been operating as God's chosen nation, but without the Ark of the Covenant in the rightful place, without the presence of God in its rightful place. And so here we have King David at this inauguration speech, and he's in front of all of Israel. He's laying out the new priority for the nation, and what's it going to be? Reread verse three again with me, and we can put it on the screen again. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. We will bring the ark of, the God, of our God back to its right place, the central place. Uh, I'm reading in the NIV, and it says we did not inquire of it, but I have a little note next to mine, and when you look at the bottom, it says, here's a phrase that I think just really penetrated me that morning when I was reading this. We neglected the Lord. Instead of we did not inquire of the Lord, it can also be phrased as, no, we neglected the presence of God. We neglected the presence so Saul was this first king of Israel, a nation and king established by God with special favor from God, and yet they were neglecting his presence for 20 years. And now you, we really need to lean in, because this sounds a lot like Waco. This sounds a lot like the Bible Belt. I'm a lifelong Texan. It sounds a lot like Texan, because the Texan culture, because they have a culture of religion. They have an appearance of religiosity under Saul. They sort of ran the plays of faith but they had no need for the presence of God. They had no need for the power of God. It had been an afterthought. It wasn't in the place it was supposed to be. It was out of sight, out of mind. It's, it's over there and it's not a big deal. We can play religion. We can be involved in faith and we can be God's chosen people, but we don't need God's presence. I hope you're seeing this. this is, it's extremely serious for each one of us today that we can be surrounded by religion we can be surrounded by religious roommates and, and faithful churches. We can be in rhythms of faith but spend zero time in God's presence and have no real relationship in the secret place with God and his power and his holiness. I hope you're seeing it. There's a difference when the presence of God is centralized and when it's somewhere else. 
And so if you're taking notes, this will be on the screen. Don't neglect the main thing, God's presence for the lesser things of religiosity. That includes organizations, that includes churches, that includes all these things that can sometimes we can get so consumed by the natural of it that we're missing the, the moments where we can just be in God's presence with others and when no one else is around. And this understanding is what made David special. What does it mean to be a David generation? From, from the time he was a young boy, he was a young boy to now when he was a new king, to the end of his life, he would, he would all the way through never neglect the presence of God. He wanted it to be centralized. He wanted it to be the main thing for him and for the people. And so the question for us is this, will we be a David generation or will we be a Saul generation? And this is uh, two places for us to go. This is what I was praying for you a month ago. It's what I've been praying for myself. It's what I've been reflecting on for the last three or four weeks. Lord, I want to be a generation like David that was obsessed with God's presence, with spending time, not just in, in prayer before meals or prayer before your small group or prayer even at the altars. These are all good things, but spending time in extended prayer every day, loving the word of God more and more, worship that's overflowing, hearts that are hungry for God. Lord, I wanna be full of everything that you have for me, but I also wanna simultaneously hunger for more. Like, that's what I want in my life. That's what it means to be a David generation. Or is it a generation like Saul that, as the New Testament calls it, has a form of godliness, but has no need for God's presence? Surrounded by religion, surrounded by being a Christian, a God person, is the idea of being in God's presence like the Ark of the Covenant was for the Israelites? Is it central to your everyday? Or is it just sort of an afterthought that really gets you know, conjured up maybe a few times a year or a few camps or a few conferences a year? Maybe you're involved in many things of religion, of faith, of church, but the holiness, the power, the depth of being in a relationship with God's presence is completely foreign to you. And tonight is the night to move into the camp of God's presence to say, this is the time where I'm gonna re-centralize. This is the year, Lord, 2024 is the year where every day I wanna be consumed with your presence more than anything else. I want your presence to mark me, God, just like it did David, just like it did the Israelites under David's leadership. And so what I wanna do is I want us to look at what it means to be a Saul generation and then what it means to be a David generation. And then we're gonna spend time worshiping and, and repenting and, and time in the altar, time in prayer together. Since the end, middle of December, I've been reading 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and 1 Chronicles. And so uh, it would take me about 90 minutes to give you all these stories that I'm about to tell you, right? And so my encouragement to you is, is that we're not gonna go to each one of these stories that I'm gonna tell you about, but you can, number one, I hope you trust me that I've, I've read them, that I've spent time in prayer over them, and that they're there. And then I challenge you, if this is stirring in your heart, to go read 1 Samuel, 1, uh, 2 Samuel, and 1 Chronicles, because that's the life of David. Before he was king, while he was on the run uh, from Saul, and then while he was king. And so all of this, what follows, is cited in those books across many events and incredible stories of God's power, but also really scary stories of, of what sin can do to us. And so first, let's look at the Saul generation, and all this will be on the screen tonight. The Saul generation, we can learn from, from the life and the leadership of Saul what it looks like to live uninterested in God's presence. And so again, if you have been dozing off or if you haven't heard it yet, you don't wanna be this guy. You don't wanna be the Saul generation. The first one is this, is that Saul did not inquire of the Lord on his decisions. I want you to begin to posture your heart before the Lord and say, Lord, are any of these things me? 
And maybe it's on all four things. Maybe it's just one or two of them, or maybe they're just part of this that you're feeling conviction in that tonight it says, this is gonna be the year that I step into being the David generation on these things. Saul did not inquire of the Lord. Saul made decisions for himself, and he did it out of his own ability to strategize. And some examples in those books of the Bible that I mentioned is, is he decided, actually the whole reason the Ark of the Covenant was gone from the place it was supposed to be is because they were at war with the Philistines. Saul had a good idea. I think this was a, a, probably a smart idea. He said, why don't we take the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, to the place of battle? And then God's presence will go with us and then maybe we'll win in this supernatural, amazing way. Except for that God said, never move it. Like it needs to stay right there. All of the warnings, all of the plans, God's way said, don't do that. But Saul wasn't listening to God's way and so he took it out there and they got creamed in battle. They lost bad. And, and the Ark of the Covenant was actually stolen by the enemy and it was a long time before they could even get it back into this other house, the son of Saul, for these 20 years. And so it was a huge mistake. He was neglecting, he, he was not making decisions with the Lord in mind, but instead he was just making decisions on his own. Uh, and then in the end of his life, he would become very jealous of David, as I mentioned. And, and instead of asking the Lord, Lord, how do I manage these feelings? Lord, how do I manage this transition? I'm jealous of this man of God, David. Instead, he took his own strategies on himself, and he, and he over and over again tried to kill David. The second thing in the Saul generation is that Saul led people to also neglect God's presence. He led others to neglect God's presence. David's words at his speech in 1 Chronicles 13, they said this, David's words were that we neglected him during the reign of Saul. It wasn't just that Saul neglected him, but that we as a nation neglected him. What began as Saul's choice eventually affected and held back all of these people in God's nation. And, and when you start to embrace God's presence, people will notice. When you start to spend more time, extended time, walking in God's presence, not just when it's crafted in a church gathering, or not just when it's at a camp, but when it's just you and the Lord, when this starts to spill over into your everyday life, people notice this, and people start going, man, there's fruit, I don't see it, I'm not watching you in that place, because that's what it means to be in the secret place with God, but I see the fruit, there's something that's happening. See, it starts to affect other people, but the opposite is true, too. As we neglect God, as we strategize for ourselves, as we don't inquire of the Lord, as we don't ask the Lord to lead us, so too then the people around us do the same thing. They begin to run those same plays. Your, your future children, your friends, all of these people around you start to neglect God's presence and God's power, just like it happened with Saul. The third thing, Saul backed himself into needing help, but not having God to ask. In the end of his life, he gets extremely just undone, needing God to help him. But he spent years and years and years neglecting God's presence, neglecting God, going against God's will. And when it finally comes down to it, he's just too far from God in fellowship. And the Lord just says, you know what? Like, you know, you're not gonna get anything from me in terms of wisdom because you're just too far at this point. And so where Saul goes, he goes to a, a darker place. Scripture tells us that, that Paul would go, excuse me, Saul would go at the end of his life and seek out a medium like someone who's in the occult and seeking out the demonic to try to give him some answers. He needed help, and he had, he had built a life of neglecting God, and so the only supernatural place he could go was something lesser, something darker. And it was, it was marking his life in the same way that God would have marked his life in a positive sense. This was now marking him in an extremely dark and negative sense. And the fourth and final thing about the Saul generation is that Saul's decisions became less and less godly and more and more selfish. 
Saul's decisions, the fourth thing, Saul's decisions became more and more selfish. Kevin, if you can put that one up for us too, the fourth one right there. His, his decisions became less and less godly and more and more selfish. Thank you, bro. In the end, here's what happens with Saul. He ends up taking his own life into his own hands, killing himself. And I recognize that suicide is, is a prevalent thing and, and perhaps you know of people that have committed suicide or, or perhaps you have had these thoughts of suicide and so I recognize that this is an extremely heavy subject but, but it marked the life of Saul because at the end of his life he had spent so much time neglecting God's presence, so much time strategizing for himself, so much time making selfish decisions that he came to the ultimate decision and instead of asking the Lord, instead of trusting the Lord with the end of his life, he took his life into his own hands. And, and I'm not saying that every single person who neglects God will commit suicide, but suicide is this extreme example of taking what is in God's hands, life and death, and putting it into our hands. And so David's generation just continued to go lower and lower and darker and darker into the ultimate, ultimate place of, of, of his own decision making. And so if that's the Saul generation, that might mark you in one or two ways. That might mark you in some really extreme ways. And, and, and I want you to hear that the Lord tonight says, step into the camp of my presence. Step back into this place where, where you don't neglect me, where you, where you st have stopped asking me questions, where you've lived for yourself, where you've started to negatively impact the people around you, and just step into the place where, hey, you can just be in my presence like David was. There's nothing special about David. David made mistakes. David uh, had many sins in his life. David was a man who struggled and a, and a man who, who succeeded and failed, but David was marked by being in God's presence. And so for us tonight, if we're saying, Lord, I wanna step into that, if we wanna step into that, what are the things for us? What are the things that God has for us to step into the David generation? What marked his life? The first thing is this, is unhindered worship for David. Unhindered worship. And so for the David generation, for us, we ask this question, do I worship in such a way that, that, is, that is growing? Do I worship in such a way where I'm, I'm growing more and more in love with God's presence, I'm growing more and more in love with worship? Because at a young age, David was a worshiper, just like many of you probably at a young age. One of the reasons he was close to King Saul was because he, was, he could play an instrument. He was a musician, and so he was welcomed into this space to be a musician in King Saul's space. And I love that about God because God brought him close to leadership in a way that was important but still minimal so he could learn and be prepared for when he was the king. But I think music is so interesting, and I think worship matters a lot musically. There are many ways to worship God, but I do think that musical worship matters a lot. And here's, here's what I would say. I think music, can, you can take any person, go to any country, go to any timeline, go back 1,000 years, 5,000 years, go to any continent, go to any religion, and music will matter to that person. Have you ever thought about that? It's unlike anything else. Sports is close, but there's a lot of people who don't really like sports. You might have some, some artists. You might have you know, some hobbies, these kind of a things. But music is unlike anything else, and that must mean it matters to God. And if we're created in his image, then there's something about music that, that just draws us into being like God in his image. And, and even in heaven, the choice of God is to say, this is gonna be an unceasing worship service people singing and worshiping and praising and praying. And so worship musically matters to God. If something is that universal in music with every single person, then it must matter to God a whole lot. And somehow David understood that. And I believe that we can too in increasing measure. 
And so perhaps the place of repentance for you tonight is that you have become dull to worship. You become muted. To, music has become boring to you in the church. And God wants to light something up in you tonight that says, no, that there needs to be more time. There needs to be uh, more love. Let's, let's go deeper into worship together because that's something that God, that matters to God. There's a reason why when you step into these times of worship music for most of us, there, there's an excitement. Our hearts just catch on fire and we say, look, I want to, to be closer to God because of this worship time. And it's not all emotionalism. It's not all, there's something naturally and supernaturally happening in our hearts, in everyone's heart. And that's why worship has mattered for so long. One thing that's interesting about unhindered worship is that when they finally bring the, the ark back into the tabernacle, so after this happens and they go and they get it, there's a lot of events that happen. But what it was was a praise parade. And we read that even in chapter 13 that they just start to have all these instruments and all these people worshiping. And they have this uh, extreme extremely long and intense and wonderful worship parade as they bring in the ark of God back to its rightful place, as they re-centralize the presence of God. Second Samuel chapter six talks about this, and, and it says that the priests were carrying the ark. And I love this, David wasn't wearing his king robes. Instead, he was wearing the robes of a priest who would worship the Lord. So he said, I'm not gonna wear those purple robes, the ones that identify me as a king. I'm gonna wear the robes that identify me as a worshiper. And he led this worship parade. And the Bible says this, that they would, the, the parade, the people who were carrying the ark and all the people and David, they would take six steps. One, two, three, four, five, six. They would stop and they would have a sacrifice and they would have a praise and worship moment right there. Boom. Pick it up. One, two, three, four, five, six. Set it down. Praise and worship. Sacrifice to the Lord. How long must this have taken? It was like a 10 mile journey. How long, how long was this prayed that they were on? But worship was so central to his life. The heart of worship for us must, must grow in passion. And so build your playlists for God. What, what are your favorite playlists? What are the ones that are pinned at the top when you click playlist button? That's fine, there's, there's other great music out there. But are any of them being built for the Lord? Curate your YouTube subscriptions tab to where worship will pop up there. Man, oh, this, this song just, just dropped on my timeline. And I'm gonna just spend some minutes or some hours listening to this and being in God's presence. We wanna be worshipers like David. David wasn't just a worshiper though, he was a mighty man of prayer. He was a mighty man of prayer. It's the second thing. As I've been reading in First and Second Samuel and First Chronicles, I, I noticed almost, I think close to 10 times, I, I've seen this moment happen where David has a big decision in front of him. Should I go over here? Should I go over there? Should I attack this enemy or should I not attack this enemy? Should I do this with Saul or should I not do this with Saul? Uh, what should I do as the king? What should I do as a man on the run? And in all of these events, it says that David stopped and asked the Lord. He spent time praying to say, Lord, what would you have for me? It was a great contrast to Saul who just did whatever he thought was right in his own eyes and with his own strategy. He, he would do these things over and over again. He was a mighty man of prayer. And many of you know that there are 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms, 150. David wrote 73 of them. And that's just a prayer journal, that's all it is. It's his prayer journal writing out prayers to God in the middle of depression, in the middle of sin, in the middle of praise, in the middle of victory, uh, in the middle of worship. All of these moments he's just writing down and, and half of the Psalms nearly were written by this man of prayer. And as you begin to centralize the presence of God in your heart, in your day, in your life, you just can't help but go to God more in prayer, to listen, to ask to hear him leading you and showing you things. 
and we become mighty men and women of prayer like David was if we step into the David generation. And the third and the final thing for us, the David generation, is round-the-clock ministry to the Lord. Round-the-clock ministry to the Lord. See, David desperately, he was so in love with God's presence, he was like, Lord, can I please build you the permanent temple? Like this little rinky-dink tent thing, I want it to be way bigger, way better. Let me build you the temple. And God said, no, you can't build the temple because you have been in battle too much. And so I'm gonna take your son, Solomon, and he's gonna be the one that builds the temple. But this is how much David loved God's presence. Because he, he, first of all, I love this, he just said, yes, Lord. When God said no to his greatest dream, he just said, yes, Lord. But you know what, he didn't get sassy with God, he didn't get upset, he didn't get all critical and throw a fit and do all those things. He said, I'm gonna do everything I can to support God's vision for Solomon being the one to build the temple. And so what did he do? He went out and he spent all of this time, all of this research, all of these resources to gather all the materials that would be needed for this temple. We're talking about so much gold, so much wood, so much rock, all of this being moved many, many, many miles over many, many years to collect it all together. And then his last act as king would be to set up the officials of the temple. So the Levites and the priests and the gatekeepers and the musicians, and it literally lists it out chapter by chapter at the end of First Chronicles. David's about to hand over the kingdom to Solomon. And he says, let me set up all of these leaders in the temple so that for one purpose, round the clock there can be people praising God. Round the clock there can be people in God's presence because God's presence is worthy of that. So if I can't build it, literally, I'm gonna help to build this infrastructure. And many of us, you, you understand that you have a, a horizontal ministry, that you are to cultivate ministry to others. What are my gifts? What are my passions? What are the ways I can share the gospel? What are the ways uh, that, I can, that I can meet the needs of the poor? And this is important. God has given you gifts to minister horizontally. But don't miss this lifelong Baptists in the room. God has also given us a ministry that's vertical. And, and it's, it's a priestly ministry that these priests that David set up would, would minister to the Lord day and night, morning, noon, and night, that there would be people who are going into God's presence just to worship, just to praise, to not just minister outwardly. Yes, we need to keep doing that, but we need to also say we're not going to miss the ministry vertically, the priestly ministry, that, that all of us, as the New Testament says, that the priesthood of the believer have now received as we are a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, not just this Ark of the Covenant, but that we too have a responsibility and, the, and, and just the privilege to do this, to have this vertical ministry to cultivate. So we live in, in such a special time where this is possible and it's easier than ever. You know, lately God has been convicting me and been trying to do this more and more that when, when my alarm goes off in the morning that the first thing I do is I take my headphones and I put them in and I try to put on some worship music. So the first thoughts in my heart, the first feelings I have, the first emotions are unto the Lord. And even before I get to brush my teeth or, or get to, to getting all my things together for the morning, that I could be first thing just listening to God's worship music, to, to praying, to being in his presence, to, to just right out of bed. Uh, another thing is we're so blessed to have these high quality live streams that are for free on YouTube. You can literally find, you know, if you're more charismatic, they're all out there. If you're more reformed, they're all out there. If you like this kind of music with choirs, they're all out there. If you like that kind of music with drums, it's all out there. And they will post their stuff every week, some of them every day. And it can pop up into your life and it can be something where you're cultivating unceasing, round-the-clock ministry, worship to the Lord. It's so easy, it's easier than ever. And I'm telling you, it's something that's so important. We have that we can do every morning 
all the time. And you don't need to say all of a sudden, now I'm doing it round the clock, but you can just say, Lord, this year, being in the David generation, what's it mean to, to step a little bit more into this? That maybe I could finish my day in the word instead of just starting my day in the word. Or maybe I, I finish my day in the word in your presence, but I wanna start my day in your presence. And you just take a little step into being a David generation this year. And so don't be like Saul, who, who settled for this light version of religiosity, where you worship maybe one or two times a week in these little cultivated settings of, of being in God's presence, but, but like David, a worshiper, a prayer warrior, around the clock, in the secret place, with others, alone, all of these things marked David, and it's the generation that we need to step into. And, and as I close tonight, I, I just want to, uh, to give you this encouragement and, and really a challenge. That 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, it says that all things are permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And I just really sense that there's a lot of things in our life, and I'm speaking from a place of what God's been teaching me lately. There are a lot of things in my life that are permissible and fine, but as I, as I spend more time in God's presence, I'm recognizing they're not beneficial. There's, there's a distinction between foolishness and sinfulness. There are some things that we're doing that aren't sinful, but they're just foolish. The amount of time that we're spending watching certain things. Again, maybe not sinful, but foolish. The amount of time that, that we're spending in sports or in video games or, or in doing these different hobbies. Again, not sinful, but foolish. There are things that are permissible but not beneficial. And I wonder if we ask the question for ourselves, what's something that I could take away or I could step a little bit back in, a little bit less, I could shed away, and that God would perhaps meet me in that place where I could spend more time in his presence. And as that happens, I start to grow more hungry for God's presence and I start caring less about the sports game. I start caring less about uh, this hobby or this activity or this podcast. And I start to go, just get hungrier for God. And I'm speaking from a place uh, of what God's been doing in my life over the last six to 12 months. And I wanna encourage you to consider that question. What could you lay down? What are some things that you could stop doing this year that might help you build a lifestyle of being God's presence, of being a David generation? There's a couple of examples, and, and Ray is gonna come up here and, and start uh, playing on the keys for us to kind of get us uh, back into a, a space of worship, so, so I'm closing here, but recently I've heard of two examples where college students and where Christians started to get this, and, and amazing things started to happen. I have a, a, a new friend named Jason Hershey, awesome name if you like chocolate. I don't like chocolate, so. But Jason Hershey, and he, le he leads this prayer tent movement on the, the main mall there in Washington, D.C., like where the inauguration actually happens. There's a prayer tent round the clock 24-7 where people go there and they pray. And, and certain times of the year, actually about seven years ago, six years ago, they had this thing where 50 tents were on there, one from every state. And so every state was praying in the tent over this three-day period. Uh, you know, it was hundreds, thousands of people praying from all 50 states in the capital of our nation praying. And, and what's amazing is as they were praying, this, he said this peace came over the city. Of course, they didn't know this. This is one of the, the highest crime rates in the entire nation. But the police chief came to them and said, what is going on here? There's been no crime over the last three days. There's been so much less crime that I'm like, I'm coming here to check this out. Because 50 states came and prayed at the nation's capital together. Now, my other friend, Chris, uh, he's over at Arizona State. And about 20 years ago, if you know anything about Arizona State, uh, most people think about party school when they think about Arizona State. And no offense, they're new to our Big 12, so we welcome them in uh, into, the, into the brotherhood here. 
uh, but Arizona State uh, came into, uh, you know, he, he came in there and God said, what if you had a round the clock 24 seven prayer tent? And I'm talking about a tent that was like the size of this rug, okay? Tiny tent right in the middle of campus and just begin to pray and he started to build out prayer teams in the mid 2000s, 2005, 2006, 2007, all the way for the next decade. And you know what? He said, after many, many years of doing this, an article came out in the New York Times that said, what happened to Arizona State's party school? There's something different there. It's lost its level of partying. And of course, it's, it's, it's hard to, to connect the dots, but he was telling me, he's like, there was a movement of, of people who were, who were partying, who were literally on their way to parties that would come by the hundreds over the years to find Jesus, to meet in his presence, that, that God was doing something so much so that a, the New York Times across the nation would be able to say, hey, something's different at Arizona State. And so for us, the Bible's telling us that, that this matters. David is showing us that there's something special about him and it's not a slingshot and it's not the way that he sinned, it's his heart for God and for God's presence. And so for us, quick to say, Lord, we wanna draw near to your presence. Lord, we wanna step in, we want to be the David generation. while you're in this space of prayer, focusing on the Lord, I just want you to reflect and think about, has my life the last few months or this last year been marked as a David generation or as a Saul generation? consequential that the Bible says that when the Lord comes again and he establishes his, his eternal kingdom, when Jesus comes back the next time, this is what it says, I'm going to set up the tabernacle of David. It wasn't the temple of Solomon, but it was the tabernacle of David. And then it says that the throne that the Lord sits on is the throne of David. There's something special about this man's heart. There's something eternal about it. And it's because he was tuned in to the reality that God's presence must be centralized. I must ask the Lord, I must inquire of the Lord, I must worship the Lord, I must spend more time praying, more time in worship. And so Lord, we're asking you that we could receive that sort of a, a conviction tonight, that sort of a download tonight, Lord, that we could say, yes, we have other responsibilities, yes, we have other things, but that tonight, Lord, people would come into your presence all together, together, yes, but, but just with you and them, and they could feel that one-on-one -on -one connection with you tonight. Lord, that you are a loving Father. Lord, you're the Father that's, that's sitting there just ready to receive them, right there in, in, at your seat, in your house, that you haven't passed them by, but Lord, that, that we are the ones that are passing your presence by. And so Lord, let us take a hard turn tonight and become a David generation who love your presence, who love worship, who love to pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray.